1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. The book was published by Princeton University Press this year, and the author is Rob Reich. Rob, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Uh, uh, I've read the book. This is a subject that I have a lot of interest in uh, before we dive into it. Why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you are now? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of political science at Stanford university.
0: Uh, I, I do my work mainly in political theory, political philosophy. I've had a role directing the center on philanthropy and civil society over the past decade here at Stanford. And I'm also currently, um, in, involved in the center on ethics and society. Uh, and, um, I came into political science for, you know, maybe interesting to mention this kind of, kind of an oddball route. I was, a uh, Um, an elementary school teacher for a number of years after I got my undergraduate degree in philosophy, went off to a graduate school of education to earn a PhD, um, which I wrote a dissertation on philosophy and education uh, and found myself doing political theory and uh, happily, but strangely was hired in the political science department where I still am.
1: Yeah. And and though you may not even remember it, our first encounter by email was, was about education policy. So it's uh, and those parts of the book are, are ones I actually would like to talk about. Excellent. Um, so so I wonder if we can uh, start our conversation in the way that you start the book. You begin with the story of John Rockefeller and Frederick Gates. Yeah. I wonder if you'd recount their relationship, um, what came of the relationship, and, and how it sets up the book. Sure. Yeah. I decided to start the book with this story, a kind of uh,
0: very compact retelling of the attempts that John D. Rockefeller and his main advisor, both in his business world with uh, Standard Oil and in his philanthropic efforts with the Rockefeller Foundation, Frederick Gates, their effort to get the Rockefeller Foundation created. Uh, so this was about a hundred years ago, uh, just prior to World War One, and Rockefeller had amassed the largest fortune in the world. He wanted to create a general purpose grant making foundation. And the standard in a course uh, open to him would have been to try to incorporate uh, the Rockefeller Foundation in in New York State, where he lived. And the expectations there would have been that the size of a charitable trust would probably have been limited. Rockefeller had way more money that he wanted to give away than um, uh, New York State was likely to allow him to do. And the Incorporation standards also uh, were likely to limit his giving to citizens of New York State. So he he went off along with Frederick Gates to the U.S. Congress to ask uh, the U.S. Congress to pass a bill that would incorporate the Rockefeller Foundation, basically that it would authorize its creation to operate in a general purpose way on a local, national and global scale with the size of um um, um, resources they had at the time, the proposed amount was about $100 million, which is uh, several billion dollars in today's dollars. So the story of the uh, book opens then with uh, their trip to DC to try to woo various uh, Congress people to pass this bill. And instead of being met with gratitude for his philanthropic intentions, he was met instead with enormous skepticism, and the opening of the book retells the story of the criticism that he received from the sitting U.S. president, from the various uh, civic leaders, and indeed from several people in the U.S. Senate, who claimed not merely that Rockefeller had earned his money in a way that was unsavory through monopolistic practices, through labor um, union breaking, but More interesting from my point of view, that the very idea of a philanthropic foundation was at odds with a democratic society, that um, a large philanthropic trust like Rockefeller was proposing was, in the words of one of the critics, a menace to democracy or repugnant to the whole idea of a democratic society because it represented a plutocratic element in a democratic setting, the effort of a wealthy person to use private assets to shape public policy. And uh, that was seen to be a problem rather than something to be celebrated.
1: Now, now as this, this uh, story illustrates, uh, what people uh, think the motivations of philanthropists and charity are uh, will differ. And some of this relates to terminology and disagreements about terminology and, and thoughts about what, what these words mean. So uh, I wonder if you could clarify a bit uh, what you mean when you refer to philanthropy and what, what your working definition includes and and what does it not include? Sure. Well,
0: the, the basic definition that I give in the book is that philanthropy represents the um, desire or effort of someone to uh, direct their private assets uh, towards some public purpose, towards some other regarding um, end. And those, Private assets could be money, which is the standard expectation, I think, when someone thinks about uh, philanthropy. But more generally, you could also imagine treating philanthropy as the direction of one's time um, again volunteering as a charitable act, or um, including one's body parts, a different type of a private asset, the donation of blood, the donation of organs, uh, this kind of thing um, seems to me... quite properly treated under the heading of of philanthropy. The aim of the book, however, and this is, I guess I want to emphasize this, is um, not a conceptual analysis of of charity or philanthropy, but uh, an examination of the political setting in which it takes place. The observation I came to in researching the book is that um, individual acts of charity or philanthropy, however one defines them, are ubiquitous and common across um, all places and across all time. But what makes the experience of charity or philanthropy different in different societies is the set of social norms and public policies that give structure to it and, and direct the individual preference to give money or time or um, you know, blood away in uh, um, a different form so the book attempts as i describe it a political theory of philanthropy an examination of the social norms and, and policy framework that um, are uh, um, present in the united states and elsewhere today
1: now this idea i think is really contrary to the way uh, a layperson might might think of philanthropy in in so many ways as the essence of non-governmental action Right. as a way for private citizens or groups or, or organizations uh, to solve problems quite separate from government. And, and as you just suggest, you, su- you suggest something very different in the book. So, and, and to use your, your words, um, how is philanthropy an a, a, uh, artifact of the state, as, as you put it in one of the chapters?
0: Yeah, exactly. As I say, it's not, philanthropy is not an invention of the state, uh, but it's an artifact of, uh, of any, any state. And the reason flows from what I said before, namely that these various public policies and social norms really do shape um, the the activity of philanthropy in any society. So um, let's just start with some obvious examples. Uh, in the United States and in most other countries, there is a legal definition of what should count as a nonprofit organization. Um, in the United States, we have a distinction between 501c3 public charities and 501c4 social advocacy groups. In fact, there's a 501c27 category. There are many different fine-grained distinctions among non-profit or tax-exempt entities. Um, that entire system is less than 100 years old. Um, the difference between a for-profit organization and a nonprofit organization didn't really exist 150 years ago. It was created through legislation in the U.S. Congress. Um, Another example, the private foundation, the kind of preferred form for big philanthropy today, is also a legal creation and one which gives donors enormous discretion and, in fact, is by default um, arranged to exist in perpetuity. So once again, here we have a legal arrangement that gives a certain type of shape to philanthropy in the form of a foundation The dead hand of the donor stretches out of the grave to throttle the preferences of the living. And uh, again, that's a a policy choice. Um, And finally, and perhaps the one that seems to me most wanting examination, is the ubiquity of tax incentives or tax um, concessions for philanthropic behavior, both at the organizational level, the tax exempt organizations, and for individual donors to 501c3 public charities. Uh, So although it's true that philanthropy is a voluntary activity, it's different than government in that it's non-coercive, it's an exercise of liberty that is subsidized through the tax code. And so strictly speaking, what we see in philanthropy in the United States and elsewhere is um The tax subsidization of the exercise of a liberty that people already possess
1: now you present some some eye opening data in in chapter two of the book on the role of philanthropy in education as we as we mentioned earlier. I wonder if you could describe a bit these these data uh, in general terms and and what they say about the role of philanthropists in advancing educational equality, which uh, we would imagine most most have some interest in what do these patterns look like? You look in in part at California, and and what do they say about the the state of of philanthropy? Yeah. Yeah,
0: this is really how I got into the whole topic um, a number of years ago. I had kids of my own, and I was getting ready to send them off to public schools uh, here in the Bay Area, uh, of course, a a pretty wealthy part of the country. And in the suburbs around uh, Stanford University, uh, the public school's are engaged in a a very concerted effort to raise additional dollars through private donations to supplement the public funds that come through the state. And when I signed my my oldest kid up for school, uh, I got back on the first day that he was in kindergarten, the letter from the school district that said, you know, welcome to the school district. We're so happy to have you. Uh, This year, your expected but voluntary contribution is $2,500 per child. And and I was both flabbergasted as a parent that this was happening, but then I thought as a scholar, I would try to track the uh, existence of local education foundations in Northern California and the intuition, hardly uh, radical intuition, just seems common sense, that wealthy towns and suburbs could raise a lot more money philanthropically than could large cities or poorer places, and that this additional charitable giving to supplement the public schools would worsen uh, inequality between schools rather than remedy it. And indeed, of course, that's what I found. Palo Alto raises a lot more money per child philanthropically than East Palo Alto does, and basically any suburb on a per-pupil basis raises a lot more money than Oakland or San Francisco. And then, of course, these are all tax deductible contributions. So the federal government is subsidizing the exacerbation of an inequality that it seems to me some state agent is you know, really responsible for addressing in the first place. So here is a perfect example of charity that doesn't address disadvantage or the poor, but in fact, further advantages the already wealthy. And that just seemed to me perverse. And I wanted to understand more about how frequently charity serves this um, function—the exacerbation of inequality rather than its remedy—and why it is we had tax incentives in the first place for this type of giving, and that set me on the larger project
1: uh, as a whole. Now, now, as you suggest, philanthropy is is quite tied up with public policy, but it's also broader than that. Uh, what does all this have to do with? Democracy and democratic institutions. Um, is, is this ri- the rise of powerful, powerful foundations, which you show in the book, a threat to democracy in the United States, or is it best viewed in some other way?
0: Right. That's the ultimate setting I wanted to, you know, I guess, place the analysis was not um, looking merely at the intention of a donor or the distribution of a particular kind of giving in one, one arena, say in education. I wanted to try to understand how and whether uh, philanthropy seen uh, as a whole supports or might subvert um, democratic governance or democratic aims. And perhaps the worry here is easiest to see if we think about the role of big philanthropy. And that's, again, reverting back to the story about John D. Rockefeller. Um, The basic idea of big foundations or big philanthropy is to take what you know, definitionally is a plutocratic voice, the the preferences of the wealthy and give them special standing to uh, um, have their say, as it were, within um, the public sphere through funding their, you know, preferred p- public goods or to try to influence public policy. The kind of punchline conclusion I reach when I think about foundations in the United States is that they represent an exercise of power. And anywhere in a democratic society where there is a concentrated exercise of power, that deserves uh, our scrutiny, not our gratitude. And it's an exercise of power that is basically unaccountable, very frequently non-transparent, donor-directed, by default perpetual, and generously tax-subsidized. And it seems After that type of description, that foundations might be a misplaced element in a democratic setting because it's the insertion of a plutocratic voice, you know, directing private assets to some public influence rather than beginning from, you know, one of the core values of a democratic society, which is the political equality of citizens. And here we have, um, an arena in which the wealthy can exert their power and their preferences, um, tax-subsidized, and in fact, legally codified and promoted. That just seemed strange to me as, a, as an initial um, arrangement, and I wanted to explore whether there could be public policies that would um, render the efforts of philanthropists supportive of rather than corrosive of democracy.
1: Yeah, it, it does raise this question. Who's going to advocate for public policies to change this? If many of the public policy advocacy is being tied to the very uh, foundations uh, that you raise so many concerns about, but you're not simply a pessimist in this book, and the subtitle of the book suggests that that you have some ideas, as you suggest, how it can be done better. So maybe you can describe a bit in in uh, wrapping up our conversation uh, what what you see as as the ways forward uh, to take the the um, uh, current situation that we're in and, and to try, as you say, to, to do it better in some way.
0: Yeah, good. Uh, so indeed, I'm not just a, a critic. I do think that there are ways that public policies can and indeed should be crafted to uh, champion uh, an associational life or a civil society that um, includes the ordinary acts of charitable giving by people like you and me as well as the acts of big donors, um, often within foundations. And, you know, I'll mention, because this is a political science uh, audience listening, one of the things that I think motivated me to explore this in some depth is the large and familiar literature within political science on the decline of civil society or associational life, um, you know, led uh, especially by Robert Putnam and his, his book Bowling Alone. Um, that focuses on this third sector um, of associational life. but one of the peculiarities about the Putnam and the Scotch literature is how little attention is paid to the legal arrangements of civil society, namely nonprofits. You don't find the phrase nonprofit organization mentioned very frequently in the Putnam literature, and I wanted to explore a bit why that is. So um, I, I basically end up, um, defending the, the significance of differentiating between the acts of ordinary giving that fund a diverse and pluralistic and contestatory civil society uh, from the efforts of big donors and big philanthropy in the work of private foundations. And I think our public policies need to treat these um, two different types of giving quite differently. So, you know, in, in short, for ordinary giving... Um, I think that it's important that um, we have a diverse and pluralistic civil society and the idiosyncratic and indeed sometimes eccentric preferences of people like you or me or anyone else to direct a modest amount of our money to some, um, you know, public facing role within civil society. You fund an arts organization. I fund an animal welfare organization. Someone else funds a um, you know, an organization that fights poverty, uh, the aggregation of all of these acts helps to power the work of civil society organizations. And what's important there is that each individual's um, donations or uh, charitable acts uh, have, as it were, the same public policy treatment um, that the, the kind of incentive structure and arrangement we have not systematically favor the wealthy as in fact is the case now with a tax deduction that systematically gives greater voice to the wealthy than to middle class and poor people. So I advocate for a tax credit rather than a tax deduction, as well as a whole host of other things, so that we have a civil society arena that partially decentralizes the production of public goods from within the state, and provides um, a kind of antidote to the governmental orthodoxy that we might see if we only relied upon majoritarian decision making and allocation of public dollars from the treasury. So that's for civil society, um, for philanthropy, and and big, big foundations or you know big donors. I I defend the role of what I call discovery—that what philanthropy can and should do is to take long-time horizon risky experiments in basically social innovation or policy experimentation so that we get um, foundation-funded experiments in social problem-solving, which, if shown to be effective, are presented to and audition for a stamp of democratic approval typically through a legislature that then brings that innovation to scale. Think here of the Carnegie funded libraries, which now are ordinary aspects of, of, you know, public funding in virtually every community. And I describe a whole host of public policies and social norms that try to undertake what I describe a little cheekily as the domestication of plutocrats to serve democratic aims. And, um, I do find that indeed big philanthropy is consistent with and can even be supportive of democratic aspirations if they are subject to public policies that um, hold philanthropists to this standard of discovery rather than a host of other self-interested and um, democracy undermining behaviors that we currently see quite frequently today.
1: Yeah, the, the book, uh, the title is uh, Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. The book is published by Princeton University Press in 2018. The author is Rob Reich. Rob, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thanks for having me.